Mortgage Insider is back with a brand new series. I'm Tony. And I'm Claire. And we're both business development managers at Barclays. We'll be speaking to a range of experts to explore success stories and new trends. And of course, we'll be adding our own decades of experience to the mix. In this episode, we're finding out how global events are affecting us here in the UK and how it will potentially affect the housing market in due course. We spoke to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer for Barclays Wealth and Investments. It was great to have him back on, Tony, wasn't it? Sort of the third time he's joined us and it's always interesting to hear his perspective on what's going on in the economy and and certainly with all those house prices and what we've got to look forward to or not in the future. So yes, Claire, I think you're right. I think there's a a great deal of uncertainty in the world at the moment with everything that's going on and and certainly Will can uh, help put perspective on, on some of that for ourselves and and equally our listeners. Thanks Tony and here's the interview with Will. Hello Will, thanks for joining us today. Hello Claire and Tony, lovely to see you, lovely to hear you. How are you guys? Really well thank you. Yeah very well thank you and thank you for returning for series three. Oh it's a pleasure, no very glad to be invited back. Doesn't happen very often to me actually, (laughs) certainly socially anyway. (laughs) So let, let me start, if I can, Will, if we could sort of start by rewinding a few months at the start of 2022, before the invasion of Ukraine. What kind of, of health was the UK's economy in at that point? Yeah, it's a, probably a more complicated question than it sounds like, to be honest. There's um, a couple of things to point out. I mean, one, you know, a, a few months ago, you might remember, there was quite a lot of noise about a snapshot of the UK economy suggesting that the UK was amongst the, if not the fastest growing economy in the G7 group of economies. There were a lot of headlines about that, a lot of political noise, uh, all those kind of things. Um, Yes, on a year-on-year basis, that was actually true. But the context here was quite important, I think. Um, So, you know, if you look at those kind of same try and do that same snapshot, but take a, a, a broader panorama and look from the end of 2019, so before the pandemic, right up to sort of the end of last year, you can actually see that relative to the G7 economies, the UK economy was at the bottom uh, of the list. Uh, and the point there is that the UK economy, uh, through some factors that were totally out of control of policymakers or other, you know, other actors, had a bigger hit uh, from the pandemic than many other sort of economies. Um, and so the recovery has been has been a bit faster as well. The second point, and again, I, I bored you last time, I probably the time before that with the car analogy, but it, it helps me kind of frame some of the central banking question, which is really important at the moment. So, you know, if you imagine the UK economy as a car, like all cars, thanks to the size of the engine, all sorts of other factors, it has a perfect speed of travel where you are using all its resources, where the engine is running really smoothly, it's not running too hot um, and it's not going too slow. In in economic terms, running too hot is, uh, you know, inflation pouring out of the bonnet, you know, smoke pouring out of the bonnet, inflation going too slow, that's a recession. Now, the problem for central bankers is you're always trying to get it to travel at that optimum speed of travel. Now, the problem that we're seeing, even since our last call, is that that optimum speed of travel might have changed quite substantially. So we're already seeing a little bit of you know, the after effects from Brexit, so the kind of unravelling of some of those efficiencies that existed in cross-continental supply chains and stuff like that. Um, And the pandemic has likely changed that speed of travel quite a bit. And so 
There were multiplying signs before the crisis in Ukraine that the car's running too hot, um, that we're traveling too fast relative to whatever our kind of, you know, optimal speed of travel is. So in the labor market, the economy was demanding a lot more workers than the economy seemed to be able to provide. Um, the cost of living crisis was a bit different. However, that all kind of bubbled up into this idea that inflation expectations were rising in, in UK private actors. So even before the Ukraine crisis, you know, you had central bankers with a real kind of difficult challenge ahead, policymakers with a different difficult challenge ahead, households with a really difficult challenge ahead. They had some dry powder, you know, households in aggregate um, in these kind of excess savings that we've talked about before, but those savings are unequally distributed. So the top 40% of households by income distribution have the overwhelming majority of those excess savings. So, you know, a very difficult picture, but better than where we expected to be maybe a couple of years back when we were in the teeth of pandemic. So difficult. Yeah. I mean, when we think about the last time we were talking to you, we, we were still in, in the pandemic, really, the, the last two times you've been on. And and you came, we came out of the other end of that, thinking that everything's going to be looking more rosier, you know. And then, of course, the world's changed dramatically again with, as you've referenced, the, the war on the European continent, you know, and all those other socioeconomic factors that you've just mentioned to do with the cost of living, the increase in interest rates. I mean, from your perspective, you just mentioned it a little bit, but sort of how else is that? How's that impacting us right now? How are we feeling all of that that's going on at the moment? Yeah, Claire, I mean, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but also, I mean, I would warn that the pandemic is far from over as yeah. well. You know, I don't know about you, but I've got, you know, loads of colleagues who are, uh, you know, registering positive tests. Well, and, yeah, same know. coming out the other end. It's more that we're not talking about it as yeah. much. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about it as much because other stuff. And, and, and furthermore, you know, I mean, in China, I mean, just as an aside, before we get back yeah. to Ukraine, you're, you know, you're maybe seeing that the pandemic is really taking hold there for the first time, really, since you know the original uh, kind of Wuhan crisis. You're seeing big numbers uh, in terms of new cases in Shanghai and Shenzhen, two really important uh, cities to the international supply chain. So. That bit, sadly, we got more to come. But you know, from respect perspective of sort of Russia and Ukraine and the sort of crisis, the giant humanitarian crisis that's going on, it always feels a bit weird to be focusing on the economy, like it's missing the point entirely to focus on the economy in these moments. But you know that, that we have a job to do, don't we? But the direct economic linkages um, to the between the UK are actually between the UK and Russia are actually relatively small. Um, you know, it's less than 4% of Britain's uh, gas supply comes from Russia, uh, which is a lot less than parts of continental Europe, particularly the kind of eastern side of it. Uh, Russia plays a very little role, a small role in our exports and imports and our direct investment. However, because of our exposure to international commodity markets, like everyone, you know, food prices, gas prices, petrol prices, and a range of other commodities, you know, the resulting squeeze higher in commodities across the board is going to affect us too. Um, now, you know, that, 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 that is likely to make life, sadly, a lot more precarious for households who are already in a pretty precarious position. Um, it makes the tightrope walk that central bankers have got to walk a lot wobblier. Um, in truth, they and other central banks, you know, the Bank of England and other central banks around the world know from bitter experience, um, and we go back to the 70s here, you know, this oft-cited example, that the way you turn kind of one-off hits in cost pressures into something much more durable and much more 
economically painful, you know, where you get wages and costs, wages and inflation chasing each other, spiraling higher uh, in this kind of deleterious, horrible situation that we saw uh, back in the 70s. The way you guarantee that happens is by not raising interest rates, basically, by not leaning against the cost pressures that are coming in. Um, so, I mean, broadly speaking, no, you know, if you look at the UK and world economy, there are three channels where Ukraine really kind of affects them. And one is costs, you know, that real income hits that you get. Um, two is really about, you know, more to the peripheral economies, to the, the economies close, proximate to the actual conflict, and that's supply chain disruptions and so on. But that can ripple outwards as well, you know, as this is a very globally interconnected economy. Um, and then three is kind of reduced business and consumer confidence and sort of tightening financial conditions and so on. Now, like I say, the UK is a little, little bit more protected, removed from this than continental Europe, but it's not likely to be helpful. Um, that's for sure. Um, and it's, you know, beyond the human cost, which is, God, it couldn't be more unwanted in this. <laughs> After the years of tragedy we've had, isn't it? I mean, yeah, those scenes over there are terrible, but it's not going to make life easier for the UK economy. That's for sure. Yeah, thanks, Will. I guess I'm uh, going to ask you to start looking into your crystal ball a little bit here, Will. And I know things are changing at pace and a lot can happen in a week. But what what kind of impact do you think we can expect to see going forward, perhaps into the later part of this year and into 2023? So, I mean, history, Tony, has some points to say on this. I mean, I'd be a bit careful how we listen to this message, to be honest. But, you know, um, there was a study the other day um, that was actually sort of really looking at the, the after, aftermath of the pandemic and trying to do this. And again, we talked a bit about this, but there was other studies that followed on and looked compared the 12 largest pandemics since the 14th century with the 12 largest wars since the 14th century. And they they chose the wars by looking at scaled up casualties, um, uh, casualties scaled up to today's global population. Um, now, you know, just to sort of uh, a disclaimer on this, you know, sometimes the differences between these pandemics and the differences between these wars are, are more instructive than the actual similarities. Uh, you know, you think about... The similarity between, you know, the, the English Civil War, which is one of the list, uh, and the Second World War, or, you know, the Black Death and the pandemic we've just lived through. Like I say, the differences are gigantic, but there are some relatively intuitive conclusions were that, 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 that were drawn statistically and, you know, that, that, that have some intuition, like I say. So pandemics are ultimately seen as deflationary in the aftermath. So they they reduce aggregate demand. Um the more people they kill, the more they reduce sort of aggregate demand. Now, um, wars are somewhat different um, because wars, you destroy massive amounts of capital stock for a start, uh, buildings, factories, so on. Uh, and so you need to replace those. So that stimulates investment, which means interest rates have to rise um, in order to compensate. And you also see that countries raise defence spending. Um, and so what you tend to find is inflation is higher in the aftermath of wars, whereas it tends to be lower, growth and inflation tend to be lower in the aftermath of pandemics. Now, in this particular situation, we've actually argued before that actually this pandemic might lean against that lesson from history, if you think about it, because the the differences in technology, in response, in government response, vaccine technology, I mean, are so, so different that... The response is not quite, you know, I don't think it sort of stacks up with what you would see from the great in the past at all. So there is a reason to say that actually this pandemic, you could see a more inflationary outcome. 
this war, we don't know how much, you know, it'll it'll broaden out. We hope not. Obviously, we hope peace is in the offing in some sort of sense. But net net, you can probably say that a bit more inflation is 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 a reasonable conclusion to draw. So those are just some of the things sort of on the negative side, or you know, some of the things to say about the medium term outlook. I guess against that, as you know, I'm a sort of uh, an inveterate optimist to a certain extent. And, I, I, you know, looking at the long path of history, I do think it's really important just to bear in mind that some people see the last 200, 300 years as just a heartbeat of productivity growth, that now we return to millennia of stagnation from which we came previous to the 18th century. But actually, I would see it slightly differently. And I think the more I read, the more I study um, that... You know, you can see actually the 18th century and everything we've enjoyed since in terms of productivity terms as a slow build up over centuries as we start to acquire more knowledge, more explanatory knowledge, um, thanks to the scientific revolution and all sorts of other factors. We gain this, we start building this kind of knowledge mountain um, and the payout from this mountain is uneven. You know, you get sort of inventions coming up at all sorts of times. But the fact is now that our knowledge, our knowledge, causal knowledge, expansion knowledge, whatever you want to call it, is growing at a pace that we can't even explain with theory because of artificial intelligence and other things. So I think it's way too pessimistic to assume that we won't be getting more productive over that time frame. Uh, And I think that humanity is really just starting in that kind of surge in productivity growth that we've seen over the last few centuries. So I think it's the beginning, not the end. But, you know, I mean, the destructive capability we now possess is obviously a source of great alarm. And, you know, with inequality and various other factors, the environment, all these kind of things, they're huge battles that we, yeah, that we need to overcome. Huge, huge battles that we need to overcome. But I I personally would tend towards the optimistic side and say we will and increasingly have the capability to do it. We've just got to stop being so short-sighted. Yeah, so thanks, Will, and I would tend to agree with what you're saying. I think the ability to to bounce back, um, you know, hopefully we're we're in a different position now than we have we, we have been as you look back at, at uh, various life events. But when we spoke previously, um, something to just draw you into, we, we mentioned black swan events. Um, could you just perhaps remind us what a black swan event is, and would you describe the sort of pandemic and the war in Ukraine as black swan events? So, uh, yes, uh, Tony, no, they're not black swan events, I think, because you would generally say um, they tend to be, black swan events tend to be, I think the sort of requirement is high profile, hard to predict, um, and beyond the um, the realm of kind of normal expectations in history, science, or whatever other sort of field you want to finance, technology, whatever else. So unfortunately, wars and pandemics are quite normal. Um, in history. I mean, you could argue if you go along with the Steven Pinker line, and he's sort of documented this statistically impressively, that we are getting a lot less violent when you take in kind of millennia of history. There's a huge debate about this. His statistics come up for a lot of uh, criticism and so on, but he's had a good go at it. And I I think it's a very interesting theory that we're actually becoming more peaceful, um, even though our ability to know about all the horrors in the world is getting more. You know, obviously, 24-hour news is a relatively recent invention in the sort of in the long sweep of history. And we now know about everything to much greater detail. But, you know, I think they're probably not 
um, black swan events. There are, you know, the gloomier perspective is there are people who are arguing that we are now entering an era, or we are already in an era, the sort of the Anthropocene era, where this is the time when nature bites back from our kind of encroachment into um, into the natural world, um, and that we start to see, therefore, more zoonotic diseases, more of all of this kind of stuff. Um, so this is going to be an ongoing problem, and they say that pandemics are now going to be a more frequent um, point. We shall see. I've got no expertise in that area, obviously, but I don't think, unfortunately, we can consider it black swan. But I would also, you know, just my final point would be that um, as this last two years have proved, our capabilities of sort of tackling these uh, viruses, I mean, it's sensational relative to what they were. I mean, we pointed out that last time that, you know, a physician's toolkit in the great flu was, you know, bloodletting a cancer-causing laxative and dry champagne, um, whereas you fast forward to today and, you know, the messenger RNA vaccines are made pretty much in a weekend, designed in a weekend, manufactured and with us uh, in an unbelievably rapid time frame. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously we've got all sorts of problems with dealing with it and societal prop challenges and the world culture of individualism and so on. You know, it's not easy still, but technology is surely the answer to help us overcome the challenges that land got to try haven't you I think <laughs> yeah you have got to try and so for all of us well at the minute what do we need to be keeping an eye on because of course we're being bombarded at the moment with all of these factors that are affecting us and our you know our spending so what do we need to be looking at and, and trying to keep aware of over the next few months bearing in mind we really don't know what's going to happen next week in regards to the Ukraine and, and other factors that we just cut outside of our control but what should we be focusing on well claire i mean i think you know you make a really good point there i mean i think one of the giveaways for commentators you shouldn't be listening to are those who turn around and tell you exactly what's going to happen um that the guys who are sort of saying you know i know exactly what's coming tune them out and i i gen generally think about when you're reading anything or listening to anything you've just got to think of the what have they got to gain what's their angle can i sort of trust them and try and go to the ones who've got the least to gain from the from 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 an angle from a perspective and i think really important these times is try to get outside your echo chamber you know we've all got them it's very easy to design a very comfortable little social media room where the only things you get on your feed is stuff you agree with uh it's a very comfortable position but try and find stuff you disagree with and i think generally i go a lot to the think tanks like brookings and so on i think they're very interesting cato institute wherever else you know you can sort of get um, good information, good, relatively impartial, although all, all stuff is partial, isn't it? But yeah, that, that, that's the sort of stuff. And I think from the economy perspective, remember a lot of it is noise. Um, and I think, you know, I would tend to read the Bank of England for, 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 I think the Bank of England website is a very good website for those looking at impartial information on this stuff. Um, the, the Monetary Policy Report quarterly is a very good source of information, pretty accessible. They do accessible downloads as well and videos and stuff like that. So, you know, I would keep to those kind of sources. And yeah, mostly, you know, quite a lot of the rest is just ignore and keep on keep on following Kerry Katona. <laughs> So, well, there's a there's there's a lot in that, obviously, isn't there? From from what we're saying, and I think you know th this isn't forgetting that you know we're working on the mortgage side, we're working with mortgage brokers, and our listeners, you know, t tend to work in, in in the majority of time in that field. I know 
linking into that, we've seen some huge impact in house prices, uh, certainly over the last 12 months and perhaps even over the last two years and linking into the things that, that we've mentioned. But from, from your view again, how do you think all these things are now impacting the housing market? Uh, and, and probably will potentially impact the housing markets. I know there's there's been change in you know house price earnings ratios have all gone up, haven't they as well? So what what would your view be on that? You ask the tricky questions, Tony. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. So no, I mean I, I think there's a couple of things to point out here. So over the longer term, there appears to be um, a very strong relationship between real, as in inflation adjusted um, interest rates and house prices. So there was a paper from the Bank of England on this uh, a while back uh, suggesting that based on historic evidence, a sustained 1% increase in real rates could be linked to a 20% fall in house prices over time. Um, Now, in the short run, there's an awful lot more going on, you know, obviously. Um, And this is some of the problems that are ranging from mortgage availability to shifts in uncertainty. Now, at the moment, um, there's obviously, there has been quite an interesting a trend associated with the race for space and in inverted commas. Last year, you saw the fastest house price growth since 2004. Um, now, some of this is explained, as you guys know, you've discussed this, um, by temporary relief on stamp duty and the buildup of savings from some households during the pandemic. You know, However, looking at data on stuff like you know, the falling gap between identical houses in London and outside of London over that period, uh, or the increase in prices pipe buyers were willing to pay for a house compared to a flat with similar characteristics. You could certainly argue that the race for space, which is unlikely to be immediately reversed, um, explains a lot of the kind of housing market, market pep um, that we've seen. My hunch, though, is that real interest rates have got to get up from here. Because the point is that that point about central bankers trying to ease their foot off the accelerator, the accelerator is almost best represented by the fact that real interest rates are deeply in negative territory. So they've got to try in the US and the UK and everywhere else, they've, the central bankers are now thinking, how do I get real rates up to zero or maybe even positive territory? That should be a bit more of a headwind um, for house prices over time. But there's always the proviso in the UK that there's all sorts of sort of, you know, like I say, that race for space, various other factors going on with regards to particularly regional house price story as well. Um, But that's just something I think to bear in mind. Always a very hedged response, isn't it? Could go up, could go down on the one hand, on the other, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. But I think, yeah, real rates is definitely something to think about for those looking on the very longer term. Because, you know, if you're thinking that there is more inflation about and there is, you know, central bankers, and, and I can certainly make an argument for that, um, then central bankers are going to have to have real rates possibly, you know, in slightly less negative territory, if not positive territory um, over the coming period. And that should be a headwind. Um, but it doesn't suggest a house price crash or anything. But yeah. No. Well, that's a, that's good news, Will. <laughs> yeah, good, 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 great way to end. <laughs> <laughs> there shouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you, Will. Thanks for joining us today. It's always really insightful yeah, listening to you. Time. And thank you very much. Yeah, no everything you cover. All. Lovely to see you guys. That was Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer for Barclays Wealth and Investments. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get in touch, email us at mortgageinsider at acast.com. I'm Claire McPhail. And I'm Tony Rimmer. Thanks for listening.